Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? of the brain. (laughs) If you were with me for last episode, we talked about these three parts of the brain and we didn't go into detail of all of them. I just kind of did an overview. And then each of these episodes is breaking them down. So prefrontal cortex is what we talked about last time. If you haven't heard that episode, definitely go back and listen. As I shared, it's a lot of neuroscience. We're keeping these episodes a little bit shorter. But go back and listen to prefrontal cortex before listening to limbic system. If not, you can still listen to limbic system. But uh, the prefrontal cortex is your thinking brain. We call it the wise owl. We call it the upstairs brain. It's responsible for kind of higher order emotions, problem solving, logic, reason. Today, we're going to focus on the limbic area, which is your emotional control center. And next episode, you'll get more about the brain stem. So I'm not going to go into too much about that because we will go into it next time. But this is one of my favorite areas to talk about. I don't know why I just am fascinated by the brain and the emotional brain in particular, the limbic system in particular. So I'm really pumped to do this episode. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Your limbic area, central part of your brain, right dead center in the middle. And it's responsible for your emotions and especially the emotions that play a role in survival. So especially emotions like strong negative emotions like fear and belonging, those hit real hard in the limbic system. And we call this area, according to Dan Siegel's research and Georgetown uh, University, they did their um, Center for Child and Human Development kind of coined these terms and and has this hand signal, which I will teach you on a future podcast episode to to the best of my ability, because you'll be able to see my hand. But um, the prefrontal cortex, they call it the wise owl because it's your thinking brain. The limbic area, which we're talking about today, the emotional control center, they call it the barking dog because it is like a threat detection system, much like a barking dog is going to warn you of a threat. Uh, So it's a really good way to tie that visual to it and help break it down for kids. So I might not say like, oh, your limbic system's active, but I will say like, oh, your dog is barking. In your brain, I can see it, I can feel it. Here's why, here's how I can tell, here's the evidence. Um, but it just gives a really clear way to break it down for kids. And I shared this in the previous episode, but I teach kids as young as some really cognitively able two-year-olds, but definitely by three, I'm starting to talk about these parts of the brain and the barking dog and the wise owl so that kids can understand how their brain works. And if they can understand how their brain works, they have more motivation to use some of the things that I teach them. And they, they then know what's going on in their body. And I think that's really important because we just tell them to do stuff all the time, but we don't tell them why. 
It's important that we teach them about these things and we tell them why. So think about this for a second. Knowing that the limbic system is the kind of emotional control center makes me wonder, makes me think, what would happen if the limbic system got damaged? Well, we know based on research that a dysfunctional, disrupted limbic system uh, is and can be associated with multiple clinical disorders. So what would those include? Anxiety disorders, epilepsy, dementia, schizophrenia, even autism. So something to just think about a lot of um, disorders related to like a lot of strong social emotional stuff and memory as well. And we'll talk about that in a second because there are some parts of the limbic area that directly hit on and hold uh, the memory systems and center. So we'll get there in a second, but fun fact first. I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase mind over matter. And <laughs> it's really, um, it is waging war with the limbic system as it connects the mind to the body. So is, is the gap between that physiological and psychological experienced uh, or experience um, that is bridged by the limbic system. And so you think about that mind over matter. So it's really fascinating because it's, it's talking about using your prefrontal cortex um, first, which is, is a hard thing to do when you are so emotionally reactive. And because we are biological beings, our emotional reactivity and our safety and our fear and all those things come first. So it's very hard to keep your mind over matter. <laughs> but Anyhow, just science nerd, love some, the fun science stuff. So moving on, <laughs> limbic system. It holds neurons, things like dopamine, which are responsible for pleasure feelings and, or at least the anticipation of pleasure coming. And it's what motivates us. It's what motivates kids um, to meet, meet new, go to meet new people, to try new things, to go new places, or to even learn something new. So we need that. And <laughs> it, can, it can be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing um, because the drawback is that things like drugs and alcohol also affect the release of dopamine, which make it difficult for a person to feel pleasure without those drugs or alcohol. And that's why I how they get addicted. So as a result, people become addicted to drugs uh, as it helps with the release of dopamine. So think about this too, from like a pre-born standpoint, when kids are exposed to drugs or alcohol in utero, they are then born with altered dopamine-making systems, meaning, meaning they usually seek greater release of dopamine, which means more dopamine is connected with more. I want more, 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 more attention, more movement, more control, more everything. Nothing is ever enough. So I think we think back to all those kids that and maybe some of those kids are our kids and challenging and drain us and just always in attention, constantly moving, very impulsive. Like that directly correlates to their dopamine system. I know I just gave the example of drugs and alcohol and things during when kids are in utero. <laughs> you can have kids with concerns in that area and those types of behavioral responses without having any exposure to drugs and or alcohol in utero. There are other things that can 
cause damage to the limbic system in utero as well, like really high chronic stress, a traumatic event while the child's in utero. A lot of those things can really alter the development of this part of the brain while in utero and right after birth as those areas are developing as well. So again, chronic stress of, you know, mom and the child experiences it in utero or child early after birth, a lot of those things will impact the growth of this area. And then you'll have kids who, again, are very impulsive, who have a lack of self-control, who need more of everything. And that includes attention, which can be absolutely exhausting and absolutely draining. So in the limbic area, you have, we'll talk about two really important pieces. So you've got the amygdala, the amygdala, or there are two of them, amygdalae are this little, are these little like almond shaped pieces and they are like the smoke detectors. Information comes into the brain through the senses. It's then processed and sent eventually to the amygdala. And the amygdala is like the filtration system, the smoke detector that says, yeah, this is safe. Send it to memory. Or it says, no, this is not safe. Or I don't know if this is safe. Send it to the brainstem, respond, react, be impulsive, save yourself. So that's where the impulsivity comes from. And the amygdala is such a fascinating part of the brain. Um, and some people's amygdalas are a little bit less developed than others and can mismanage those messages. But you've also got kind of behind the amygdala or kind of, yeah, it's behind it. Um, the hippocampus, hippocampi. And this guy is responsible for memory. So that also lives in, in the limbic area. So think about, you know, if you come in, if, if material messages, concepts come into the brain and they're processed and they land in the amygdala, it can easily be sent to the wrong place and, and miss, miss stored or information is lost along the way. It doesn't fully land in memory or it's a distorted memory, but because think about the memory system living in the emotional control center, guess what helps us store memories better? Emotion, especially strong negative emotion. Our brain is privy, not, not privy, that's the wrong word. Um, our brain is, what is the word I'm looking for here? <laughs> it has preferential treatment or, or noticing of strong emotional memories. So that's why negative things are stored uh, and cause, st like stored more deeply, stored more quickly, cause more harm and damage because the brain's focused on keeping us safe. And when information comes in that's negative, it disrupts our safety. So our brain makes that a priority. So, you know, think about too, when it, it, the memory system is in the emotional control center, eliciting a, a strong emotional response during teaching will help store the memory, especially a fear-based response. Now that is not ethical and we don't want to do that. And we should not be doing that, but if we can at least elicit some type of happy memory versus just a neutral feeling, it's going to help store the memory. Uh, and it's why traumatic memories are stored so deeply and they come out even unconsciously because that negative memory had such strong emotion tied to it that it's just locked in our, our bodies and our cellular level. So that's why the limbic system, I mean, I could talk for hours about the limbic system and I don't want to overwhelm you with too much sciencey information, but it's just it is so fascinating. I mean, the limbic area of all of them with the amygdala and the hippocampus and being the, the smoke detector and being the emotion uh, control center and that barking dog and just alerting us. I'm, I'm very grateful for, for that area because it, it saved us. Like 
it was the threat detection system that was like, hey, that saber-toothed tiger is not safe. Run away or, you know, do whatever you need to do. Maybe it's fight, but I don't know how many people would fight a saber-toothed tiger. Um, even as a naturally fight response person, <laughs> I, still, I know I'm going to lose that one. So I'm going to run away really fast. Um, but it saved us. And in, in small doses, slight activation of the stress response, slight activation of of parts of the limbic area uh, can cause us microdoses of stress, which can be a good thing that helps us to learn, helps to build resilience. So we, we do want that on some micro level. The problem is right now in the world, it's chronic or we're experiencing it on a macro level. So it's causing damage and harm to the brain. Um, but all that said, think about the limbic system being the emotional control center. Think about the amygdala being the the smoke detector and we we're calling this this area the barking dog because it is it is detecting threat for us and really important so if a child's having a breakdown and they are stuck in this area they are stuck in the limbic area it means that their kind of emotional brain is taking over they call it like an, an amygdala hijack an emotional brain hijack it it overrules the logic and the reason brain overrules the the prefrontal cortex because remember this area was developed first and then the prefrontal cortex. So we have to first calm down this area. We first have to get this area back to neutral, calm down that amygdala. And once we do that, then we can access logic and reason. So when this, when this brain part is so activated, we can't even access logic and reason. And sometimes it gets so activated that it shuts off the Broca center, which is the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for communication. To think about when people experience a, a severely traumatic event, sometimes they cannot communicate. They can't use words, they can't find words, they can't hear words because the Broca center is turned off. So again, you have to help get them back down to neutral emotion first, and then they can access logic, reason, communication, all those things. So how do we do that? Movement, touch, breathing. Those are the easiest ways to get an emotional control center to, to get the limbic area, to get the barking dog to calm down. Model, co-regulate. Uh, don't require or ask people, especially kids, to do that because putting a demand on them when they're stuck in that part of their brain isn't helpful. It just elicits a stronger response. But if you can model it, if you can show it, the mirror neurons in the brain will see it. Um, also just stay very neutral. Don't, don't match their emotion. Cause if you stay neutral. You're like an, an emotional sponge and you soak up all that heavy emotion. Uh, but be mindful of that too, is, you know, when you're in the role of a helper, whether it be parent or social worker, or educator, if you're constantly soaking up that emotion, it can be too heavy for you to bear. So where do you go to release that? Cause we've got to re release our own heavy emotion, but also the emotions that we carry for others. If we don't hold those in our bodies, hold them at cellular level, body aches, pains, all these things develop. So allowing the release of those really big, strong emotions that, that we are holding on to. But um, think about, you know, can, can you get exercise? Um, can you go for a walk? Can you go for a hike? Can you get any rhythmic movement? And rhythmic movement is really calming to the limbic area. So swinging or bouncing or jumping, um, and especially for kids. And um, any resistance works, maybe a little bit of like weight, lifting that's appropriate for the body size of a person or child, um, deep breathing, and um, just any way to integrate those things in the moment help to bring us back down. Or, you know, it, 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 those are good things to practice too when we're calm. So we practice them when we're calm, especially with kids, practice them. 
talk about when to use them and practice them so many times that they're so easily accessed from memory that when we're upset, we can still access them because we practice them so many times they're right there for us to use. So practicing these things and using them preventatively as well. All right. That's all I'm going to say today about the Olympic ring because I don't want to talk too much. I've already talked way too much already. I said I was going to keep it short. So let's go to our listener question, which is how can we support teachers in implementing SEL and SEL is social emotional literacy, social emotional learning and trauma informed practices in the classroom. Honestly, I, there are really great programs out there for teaching this kind of content. There are also some really horrible programs out there that are not grounded in research. They're not grounded in neuroscience. They're not grounded in human biology. So being really mindful of, is this program, what is it grounded in? And two, once you have the training and, you know, if you've taken courses or you've gone to workshops or you read books or even the school has brought people in, you know, once you have the training, how, how do we support our teachers in implementing it? Much like any other program or any other effective program, you need accountability. So you can ask the school or admin or whatever to keep accountability, but everyone's got too much on their plates. It's not something that everyone can hold space for. So honestly, I think I don't think I know because there's a lot of research on this. The best thing that we can do for supporting educators and implementing these practices or even supporting families implementing these practices is coaching, a coaching program, a coaching program where we teach the practice or we learn the practice. And as we implement it, there is feedback. So maybe there's observation, but maybe there's just, there's just reflective um, communication. Maybe there is no observation. Maybe we just talk openly about what the week was like and what we tried and how it went. And we reflect on that and we break it down and we dissect it. And then we talk about how to alter it to make it work better. But having someone to walk you through that practice and to slow you down enough to reflect and then to guide you on how to alter it to make it work better is the most effective model. I mean, I think it's the percentages are like 93% effective versus just listening to a workshop. I think it's like it's somewhere between like five and 15. And so I would highly adopt getting a coach of some sort, getting someone to hold you accountable, but you know, accountability is great, but it also has to be someone who's accountable in this area. It's great to have an accountability partner, but if they don't have the knowledge to guide you, they can maybe do the reflecting with you and that's better than nothing, but you need someone to help you alter what hasn't worked. So that is, that is why the majority of my work that I have designed is around coaching programs. And even the online courses and the other programs that we have, there, there is still an optional coaching component. And when I'm working with a school or a family, I always push coaching um, because I know it is the most effective. It is the quickest, um, most responsive way to get this information across. So find a coaching program, find a coach, find an accountability person. That is the best way to support teachers in this or families as well. All right, to wrap up our show, I'm going to share with you a try to home tip, which is do some Qigong spelled Q-I-G-O-N-G. It is an ancient practice, Asian, and it's like a very feminine form of martial arts. It's actually, I think, grounded in self-defense. And it's typically they'll, they'll hold like 60 minute long classes, but you might be able to find something shorter. And I would definitely start shorter. I would not start with 60 minutes because it's really slow moving. It's kind of like yoga in that it's slow moving. And there's a lot of breathing, but you, you don't actually, it's not yoga. It's very different from yoga. So, um, you, you move your body and your body goes into these like martial arts based poses. And while you're doing that, you're really focusing on your breathing. So there's a lot of breathing involved, but why am I asking you to do this? Because it kind of sounds slow and boring. Um, 
because it completely resets your nervous system and your stress response. It brings everything back down to neutral. And when you do this in small doses or even a 60 minute class, if you can stand that and, and you can work your way up to that, um, resets you and has a lot of preventative mental health benefits uh, because it's working on keeping you in that thinking brain, that prefrontal cortex, it's working on strengthening that part of the brain. So it keeps you out of your emotional brain and the, the breathing component helps to, again, regulate you in that limbic area. So there are online courses, there are YouTube videos, there are social channels. Um, there are so many people that teach this and it's such a beautiful practice too. So when you are doing it, just try your best to stay in the moment. Don't be too hard on yourself. A lot of people who experience anxiety and, um, they're very hard on themselves for not being able to, to stay with the practice or for their mind wandering, just like they are with meditation. Don't be hard on yourself. It's, it's a practice. It takes time and starting slow and microdoses is the most effective way to make it a habit, but it's got a lot of benefits. So it's worth dabbling in. All right. That's it for today's episode of returning desk podcast. Remember our try it at home tip, which is try Qigong. And if you'd like me to answer a question on a future episode, you can either email me at podcast at the or send a text to 717-693-7744. I'm dying to know what you learned and you can lock in what you learned by leaving me a comment or review or something below to let me know what was your biggest takeaway or what are you going to apply to your life from this session? And then subscribe to future episodes to learn more ways to hack your brain and share this with people who want to also hack their brain or who just need the support for their own sake and sanity and their, their kids' sake and sanity. Uh, until next episode, I am Lauren Spiegelmeyer and thank you for joining me. Thank you.